Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined again by David Polanski for a film discussion. We are talking about the life and death of Colonel Blimp, a 1943 movie on its 80th anniversary this year that speaks to English character and to the transformation of English character through the wars of the 20th century. Colonel Blimp is played by Roger Livesey, a wonderful actor, not, I would say, exactly quintessentially English, maybe more of an English ideal. He's not your typical man. He's the man near the top of what is possible uh, for a gentleman to be, an embodiment of the, the dignity of the English, their confidence and their moral virtues. And through this character, we get to see transformations of life from the turn of the century through World War II and a, a kind of appeal to the English in not forgetting this and not forgetting themselves to somehow hold on to this English character. I'm a great fan of the movie, but David, it was your idea. I was uh, asking you, what should our next podcast be about? And told me, well, how about we talk about this movie? This came out of left field. I had no idea this was something that you would love or want to talk about. So let me pass the conversation to you. I'm very happy to do the podcast, but what on earth was on your mind? Why do you like this movie? Why are we talking about it? Well, you asked me to come up with a movie to talk about, and I said this was the one that was probably the closest thing in my mind because I've been kicking around an essay on it. I just put up on my website because the problem is I'm almost too close to it. It's one of my favorite movies. It's probably in my all-time top five. And so as a result, as much as I'd like to have a nice, smooth framing device that lets you sell it, mostly it's just me talking about how much I like the movie. And it's very hard for me not to fanboy about all my favorite things. It's a strange movie. It's not very well known. The first time I ever even heard of it, this was back in the old days of the internet, you know, before, you know, it was harder to find things. You had to go on weird, random websites, but it was great because you had the kind of people who create these websites, you know, they weren't just content aggregators, they were crazy enthusiasts, you know, and probably people on the spectrum who feel the need to put together incredibly elaborate websites on film using like the Angel Fire portal or something like that. So, but it was a great way to find out about film when you were like an 18-year-old kid just sort of getting into cinema. And one thing I remember reading, I think it was the old British magazine Time Out had put out after, sometime after 2000, a list of the greatest films of the 20th century. And very high up on the list was The Life and Death of Colonel Blip. This really caught my eye because it's something I'd absolutely never heard of. And I didn't know Powell and Pressburger, the filmmakers at the time. You know, you're used to seeing things like The Godfather and Kubrick and all the rest of it, and Scorsese and so forth, and Wells. Just one I didn't know. Although at some point you realize it's sort of part of a club. David Mamet has said that his favorite scene in any movie is this great, wonderful moment where uh, the two principal leads are about to fight a duel and the camera begins to kind of withdraw out the window just as the duel is beginning. And the novelist Ishiguro has called it one of his favorites. And he said he basically wrote The Remains of the Day. He started writing The Remains of the Day after watching the film for the first time. So it's got an interesting fan club. And Scorsese has long been a big promoter of both Powell and Pressburger. And you can sort of see why their outlook is so much more gentle than his. But then you realize how audacious they are technically and visually, although they're not in your face about it. They're rarely using shots that seem to be, look how clever I am, shots. But they're not above all kinds of dazzling technical things in both this and A Matter of Life and Death, another one of their great films that also doubles as propaganda of a sort, features a lot of that. The other reason I'm interested in it is because, in a way, it is a propaganda film. And I'm always interested in movies that have a sort of, I guess, political slant to them, but then somehow these get bound up with the aesthetic or the artistic impulse. I guess my favorite example of this is probably something like I Am Cuba, 
which is maybe one of the most beautiful films ever made by anybody. And it's basically just straight up Soviet propaganda on behalf of the Cuban revolution. That's how it was meant to be. But then you watch it and it's really just two and a half hours of these insanely dazzling shots of how beautiful Cuba is. And you can tell the director keeps forgetting that he's making a propaganda film about the Cuban revolution. I love it so much. It's not quite what happens here, but it seems to be a case in which their intellectual and artistic predilections begin to run over what is notionally the political purpose of the film. The political purpose of the film, in a sense, being to bring the British around to the understanding that they are fighting a new kind of war. This film is made during the height of the Second World War, and there is this intention, notionally, which is sort of laid out at the beginning, but then this gets enormously complicated by the film itself. The intention being to indicate to the audience, we are fighting a new kind of war. This is modern warfare. We're fighting an enemy that won't give up, that will, that will stop at nothing. And we, in turn, have to relinquish certain Victorian schoolboy notions of honor uh, about how to win and just accept that we need to win at all costs. This is what modern warfare is. But of course, by the time you get to the end of the film, uh, that message has been complicated enormously by the experience of actually watching the film. So that's my setup spiel anyway. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a lot to be said for the power that the story has over the audience to charm. It gives a very good correlative of the effect the virtues of that Victorian era have on, I think, any decent person. It's not, of course, as you said, uh, Paul and Pressburgers are remarkably daring artists. This is a 43 movie, and that means that they were working under the worst conditions you can imagine for a bunch of directors. And although it is certainly were propaganda, it was not officially acceptable to the English government. And that meant they didn't have access to stuff. And yet, if you look at the it's 12 hours and 14 minutes of gorgeous Technicolor, it's just beautiful to see. And we tend to have an antiquarian view of it. Those who love cinema, how did they do it at the time? how odd it is that they could do these things. And on the other hand, some of the daring of the shots is lost on people nowadays out of habit. The first dozen or so shots are motorcycle antiques, all sorts of stunts and very unpredictable and uh, clever series of cuts. And on the other hand, nowadays, these things are so easily done uh, digitally or with visual effects that you don't think anymore about how impressive it must have seemed to audiences to see this in 43, especially, of course, you know, the title sequence is kind of funny medieval tapestry, static shot. And then you get, instead of the Colonel Blimp on horseback, you get the iron steeds, if you will, all of these motorcycles. It's the modern era all of a sudden. Do all of these old romantic notions make sense? Well, the adventure of seeing motorcycles and the adventurous way in which they are shot in these moving cameras also serve as a connection. And that, I think, has to do with the artists themselves and the fact that, uh, you know, the world is also quite exciting. I don't think it, it needs to be laboring, but modern life is very boring. It's hard to find things to write stories about, or that is to find things that you think you can write a story about and you think a large and perhaps thoughtful audience would be interested in. It tends to make for more cynical or miserable artists. Here, there seems to be none of that. There is something almost of medieval or of ancient freshness in it, in that the story of this whole drama of decency and the Victorian schoolboy uh, virtues is told very directly. And yet it has a depth that, as you were saying also about their art, it does not announce itself, it's just there. But it's unmistakable to a man who thinks about the fact that there really is a great trouble brewing in the 20th century. 
And you do want to know how does this very moral, very decent and very daring military fellow, Colonel Blimp, deal with it. So I think I'm with you on the ambitions and the character of the art. I'm also with you on this other issue. Somehow it's not as famous as it should be. The Paul and Pressburgers are, are, are famous directors nowadays, but I think maybe only famous among the few people who follow lists of famous directors or something like that, cinephiles, you can say. Most of their first eight or ten movies were war propaganda movies. Some of them, I guess, are still famous, maybe 49th Parallel, the Canada Nazi story with what's-his-face, Laurence Olivier. And I guess you also already mentioned the matter of life and death, the David Niven pilot story which I saw recently, and it's, it's quite good up until you get to the crazy, crazy conceit about a uh, judgment in heaven. And, you know, you have statues mm -hmm. of all of these Confucius, Muhammad, what have you, uh, uh, legislators and prophets on the stairway to heaven, at which point you begin to realize that some of these people were crazy. <laughs> but it is quite attractive as a picture, and it also has all, all sorts of directorial turns and twists and tricks that show you artists trying to use the medium, trying to develop technique to go with their artistic intuitions and their emotions. So although they did a lot of work propaganda, it is distinctively Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger at work. You can see how well they got along out of the way their intentions unite, but also that it was people working without really much concern for say, the demands of bureaucracy or even the demands of the audience. Movies like this one were reviled in the press openly, although The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp was a big success. Casablanca was a bigger success. And the Noel Coward, David Lynn picture uh, in which we serve, another war propaganda picture, were the only two movies that made more money in 1943 in Britain. So it has this strange quality. This is work propaganda, but it's the work of artists. It was not supported by the government, reviled in the press, and yet the people loved it. I think that somehow gets to the fact that the English people recognized themselves in this. It was not just entertainment. In a way, they loved it because, after all, they love themselves. So I think that should help also our audience grasp a bit the context. Beyond that, yes, yeah, Scorsese. Scorsese and his editor, what's her face, uh, Schoonmacher, they're responsible for the re-restoration of picture some i guess it was 10 years ago they did it this was restored in the 80s and then it was restored again because like so many pictures it was butchered and uh, the result of all their efforts is that now you can just go on youtube and find an okay quality copy for the youtube era it's just there all 163 minutes of it but it's also very easy to go on criterion or wherever else and find a good copy where you can see just how gorgeous the colors are you end up just looking for the grain of the picture it's almost you know something enchanting about it so it, it has become indeed tremendously easy and therefore i think our audience will find no trouble finding the movie and enjoying it for themselves but so with the introduction david uh, let's get to talking about the movie itself please run us through the plot very briefly and then tell us what attracted your interest for your essay well, so I think we should have to preface this with some context. Uh, I myself am a mild Anglophile, and although watching their films always, uh, I find, increases my Anglophilia in the same way that listening to the Stone Roses does. And the context of the film basically involves this character, Blimp, which is basically utterly meaningless, I would say, to the, almost everybody watching the film today. But at the time, you know, Colonel Blimp was a character in a famous cartoon strip. And 
he basically, I guess you might say, he epitomized the most ridiculous aspects of English traditionalism. You know, he was a sort of classic kind of figure who, you know, that, that English figure who's always saying, oh, not the dumb thing, you know, who always wants to go by the traditional ways of doing things, regardless of the fact that they no longer make any sense whatsoever. And so the comic strip, oh, you know, was always holding up as a subject of mockery. And in fact, when it turned out that a film was going to be made during the Second World War featuring this character, Winston Churchill himself apparently took some interest in the film and was not very pleased about it. And basically, his feeling was the last thing that we need, a little of the Battle of Britain, you know, is movies coming out satirizing, you know, figures in the British Army. And I, somehow, I guess his fears were assuaged thanks to the work of Powell and Pressburger, who were very clever about this. But what makes the film interesting is that by positioning Blimp as the protagonist in this context, the formal plot of the film appears to make it that, you know, this very blimpish figure, and blimpishness, by the way, was a term that could, you know, it's sort of which was sort of more or less taken to mean something like, you know, the qualities of, you know, uh, archaic and ridiculous traditionalism. The kind of stuff that Orwell talks about, although with a similar fondness, I think ultimately for the English character. And so the formal narrative is something like this blimpish figure gets educated about the realities of modern life over time. But that's not the experience of watching it, because we first encounter him as a kind of ridiculous old man. He's literally in a Turkish bath, which is often how he was depicted in the comic strip. And he's busy doing this Turkish bath in the middle of these war games that are taking place between different branches of the military. He's surprised in the bath, at which point he tells the attackers, you know, his, his sort of fellow attackers who come to him during these war games, he says, well, the war game doesn't start till midnight. The war doesn't start till midnight. What are you doing here? You know, I'm taking my bath in this ridiculous Turkish bath. And basically, you know, the younger corporal or whatever basically says, you know, that's not how war works. This is the new world. War starts whenever the attack starts. And Blimp is outraged by this. He's completely outraged. And he says what I think is something like the thesis statement for the film. He says, on what authority do you even think to do this? To which the younger figure replies, the authority of these guns, sir. You know, and this is, in a sense, I suppose, Machiavellianism uh, in a nutshell, which is encountering this sort of, you know, more traditional and very moral limpishness. And Blimp becomes quite outraged because he suddenly sees himself as ridiculous in the eyes of these younger soldiers. He tells them, you know, basically, how dare you? Not just how dare you do this, but how dare you see me this way? You don't know anything about me. You don't know my history. And this, of course, becomes a way, as almost a synecdoche for saying, you don't know your own history. You don't know the history of what it means to be British. And you have lost the qualities of the Victorian England, which, by the way, of course, is laden with all kinds of hypocrisy. But of course, hypocrisy is part of morality, as I think any adult somehow knows. And from there, he begins to tell them his own life story. He says, I will show you why I'm not ridiculous. I will show you how I came to be the person I am. And it cuts back to him during basically uh, Victorian slash Edwardian England, where he's a handsome young man and is himself a young soldier. And then it begins to tell his story. And his life story basically spans the, most of the first half of the 20th century up to the Second World War. And what is particularly the central narrative basically concerns his friendship with the German officer which I think is really a remarkable thing to do in the midst of the Second World War, in the midst of this terrible war. They become friends because he himself fights a duel. He is in Germany. This is prior to the First World War, but already tensions are emerging, and he ends up fighting a duel on a matter of honor with a young German officer. It's not a personal matter, it's basically because the Germans are insulting one another, and this particular officer is selected to duel him on behalf of you know, the honor of the German army. They duel. We don't see the duel. They both injure each other, though, so it's something of a draw. They then both fall in love with the same English nurse who was caring for them. Um, no, I'm sorry. I guess she's not a nurse, actually. 
but are the same English woman, you know, who comes to care for them, and they become fast friends. It emerges very quickly that the German officer basically comes to Blimp and says, I'm in love with her. Blimp, being a complete gentleman, backs off, allows the German officer to make his plea, and basically helps them get together. He then becomes something like a protector to them, again, as a matter of his very blimpish honor throughout his life, although we, it's clear we know that he remains in love with this woman. And so this unrequited love becomes a sort of one of the central parts of his own life, which could seem ridiculous, but of course isn't. And this is one of those wonderful kind of ways they go about it. They show him doing all this hunting, right, which is sort of one of the classically ridiculous and, from our standpoint, pointless activities of the British ever clash. Why do you feel the need to hunt all these animals and put their heads on your room? That's so silly and frankly tasteless. In the context of the film, we see this seemingly ridiculous pastime as something he has to do to exercise the thoughts of this woman. So he goes all around the world, basically all throughout the empire, hunting big game, so he can forget that he thought that, you know, the woman he's in love with is married to his best friend. They get to World War One, and his friend is taken captive, and he goes out of his way to find him and make sure he's treated well. And his friend rejects him because his friend has adopted something like the, the, the German nationalism in World War One, and is frankly humiliated by the idea that he could be taken captive by the English. At the end of the First World War, we see him basically saying in this remarkable speech, we did it the right way. We fought with honor and we won. Now, this isn't true at all in many ways. And we know this. The British, of course, among other things, first of all, I mean, by the end of that war, everyone had done terrible things. They'd used chemical weapons. The British had instituted a massive blockade designed to starve the civilian population of Germany and so on. But what is telling about this, I think, is the need to understand themselves as being an honorable people and not as a people uh, enslaved to ideas of power worship. It is hard for me to think that the directors don't know this, and I don't think what they're presenting is itself a romantic portrait of Englishness in that respect, but the importance of having a romantic portrait, because the alternatives are all worse. Hypocrisy isn't the best, but there are always worse things than hypocrisy. They were true about the Nazis, but they weren't hypocrites. They were simply power worshippers. We finally come to the Second World War, at which point the German officer's wife is dead. He himself has married a woman who looks just like her. She has died too, and both of them are played wonderfully by Deborah Kerr. And now the German officer basically comes as a refugee at the beginning of World War II to the English, saying the fact, you know, I can't be here anymore. I refuse to accept what my country has become. But of course, the English don't trust him, because why would they? And they say, you know, we've got plenty of refugees. You're not the most sympathetic figure being a high-ranking German officer. At which point, Blimp quite immediately comes to vouch for his friend, despite the fact that they have not been on good terms for 20 years. And what, for me, is one of the most moving scenes in cinema. And so that brings us roughly to the end of the film. I'm sorry to give everything away, but the film basically ends with them reconciling. And seemingly, with his now understanding, yes, we are fighting a new kind of war, and I've accepted I'm willing to pass the torch onto these younger soldiers who are prepared to fight that kind of war. But the experience of the film is that both the younger soldiers, by hearing this story, and us, the audience, by proxy, by hearing it, have actually become educated to the virtues of the Victorian and Edwardian way of doing things, which, with all its hypocrisies, is a romanticized conception of themselves that demands that we behave with honor, at least that we understand the importance of behaving with honor, that we do not give ourselves into modern notions of power worship. And this is the note that the film leaves us on, I think. So it's something that seems to be a kind of propaganda that is in its own way intentionally self-subversive, I think. So that's both the narrative and my brief, brief reading of it. Yeah, I think I'm largely with you on this. Uh, obviously, when you read histories, especially the kinds of histories we write nowadays, people tend to trash their forebears. It's odd since people nowadays have next to nothing 
to brag about. And those people, for better and for worse, fought world wars, which is very, very impressive. Ask boys whether they're so impressed with their dads or with the tale of World War I. I think everybody understands what the answer would be. The oddity of the story is that, as you say, Paul and Pressburger are very aware of the limits and the ugliness in England as well. Indeed, Pressburger was German and Paul was English, so you could say really it's about their friendship. Colonel Blip is about their friendship and their agreement about the fact that there is something strangely noble in the English. Strangely in the sense that the English are famously derided as a nation of merchants, of shopkeepers, uh, such things, and they are not... They don't have a martial aristocracy or haven't had since the War of the Roses. And yet, as you can see in Colonel Blimp and in his friendship with his German officer friend, there is not just a longing for friendship, but a capacity for the higher things. And the movie shows at length how important that is and how unusual it is. If we can turn briefly from this political side to a more philosophical analysis... I mean, it's Aristotelian in that sense. It places friendship, it doesn't disregard politics at all, but it places friendship above politics, I think, in important ways, in human ways. Yeah, and I think that's because it's 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 much easier to say what the good that friendship desires is than the good that politics desires, except with respect to war. And of course, this is again a very philosophical position to take, but war is an educator. War really does reveal many uh, many things about human nature that we would wish not to see and that perhaps we are better off in a certain sense not seeing for the most part. So war does to adults what adults do to children in that regard, both in the hiding of things and in the revealing of things that are hard to take. The issue, therefore, in the movie is not reducible to politics, just like the friendship suggests there must be something higher than politics. And this is, of course, in a way, idealism or romanticism, but in a way it's not. Or rather, you could say that the romanticism or the idealism is merely the misunderstanding of something that I think once seen becomes obvious. That is, it's not enough to fight somebody, like the Germans fought the English in the Great War. You also have to fight about something. There has to be something at stake. The war creates not a friendship, but a sameness. You have to agree that something is worth fighting for, for example. It's possible to, to disagree about that too. Uh, is something worth fighting about? Well, no, this isn't worth fighting. So there is an underlying ground of humanity or of human aspiration, at least, that is revealed in the agreement to fight the war. And so there is something oddly philosophical in the story, on the one hand to do with the friendship, on the other hand to do with the war itself. And this beginning with these young men doing their dastardly thing, and a guy who turns out to be the boyfriend of this girl calls her Matahari, the traitorous spy. It's, of course, very playful and, in a way, erotic, as Matahari is, is in, in memory. But it also uh, means that she conks him on the head with something, and he chases her down to London to make sure she doesn't get the jump on him and warns off the old walrus of a guy that is now Major General Win Candy, our protagonist. And indeed, he succeeds, he and his men and their weaponry and their trucks uh, take over this Turkish bathhouse in Piccadilly. And, you know, we like these guys. They're winsome guys. They're clever. You get to hear all their names and all their excitement. But you also see men descending with guns, tracks, you know, Tommy guns in Piccadilly. It is some kind of comic image, very diluted, but very real. It's as real as an image that is can be in your face of war coming down to London. 
it forces, if comedy can force something, seriousness about the issue. And as you said, Candy somehow has to accept that. And these young men start talking at him and treating him with contempt. And eventually he has to fight the guy, the, the young commander. And that admits that, you know, he has become ridiculous and that he is indignant about th this situation. It's an odd thing, but it is of the essence of honor that it demands defending. And that is because it is open to objection. Ultimately, the whole thing is about the character of morality. The old man does wish to defend morality, and that points us to the story. You know, it's a flashback sequence afterwards, you know, starting 43, but then we go back to the Boer War and the turn of the century. But this makes sense, both because it is an analysis of the political situation and because it corresponds to the fundamental moral issue, our capacity for indignation, our capacity for praise and blame, for honor and shame. It does necessarily lead us to war. There is something deficient in morality that leads to war. And in war, a necessity reveals itself. You do have to win. So the comedy that then leads to a certain kind of tragic story, there is great sadness in the misery of the wars, even as they are portrayed. And they are portrayed as beautiful as, as wars can be portrayed, or as lightly as comedy can portray them. But there is a terrible sadness that you see in the toll it takes on their friendship. And I believe the movie is dead serious in saying that the effect that these events had on noble men, that's what you should be looking for to understand what really happened. They are, in a way, the measure of their societies. They are better than most of us, and that's why we look at them. That's why we admire them, that there's a kind of justification for our paying attention to them, whereas they wouldn't exactly be interested in our stories. So, you know, you could say that this is a political question in all movies. Why are uh, millions of us looking at these couple of guys? How are they so much more important than us? In this case, it's, it's as obvious as that. They have embodied the principles of their two respective empires, the English and the German, and there is a contest underway. And that contest leads to a couple of questions that I think it's urgent today. One has to do with national character and the possibility for conservatism, and the other one has to do with imperialism and therefore war. Our very winsome Victoria Cross-bearing protagonist, Candy, feels compelled to go and prompted by this English governess to defend the honor of England in the case of the Boer War against a scoundrel of a spy who is spreading slander and propaganda in Berlin. And this leads to the duel you mentioned because of morality. The Englishman is a decent man and his opponent is a spy. And not just a spy, but a very contemptible double agent at that. And yet we see something shocking about the character of politics. The Germans very loudly lead us to the conclusion that the worst German, this trash of a man, of, of a, he's not even a man really, of, of a double agent, has to be held to be better than the best of the English a Victoria Cross-bearing man. This gets to the problem in propaganda, that is to say, what it reveals about us. It is not the propaganda that is the problem. We are the problem. We have to believe that the worst of our enemies, it, it, pardon me, they have to believe that the, the worst among them is better than the best among us. And in a sense, therefore, that we all deserve death, that our lives are not worth living. And so that leads to a duel. Because the Englishman enforces morality and says that, no, he's a decent man. And the Germans, he expects, are also decent men. And therefore, they should be ashamed of this scoundrel. No man could, in pride, in decency, in public, admit that he has any friendship or partnership with that scoundrel. And it turns out morality has limits and leads to this conflict, leads to the war, but also leads to this duel. 
And in the duel, which we happily do not see because it would mean seeing these men who become friends and who love one another, injure one another. We can't see that. It must be concealed. In that duel, you see the question, is there any possibility of conservatism? What you get out of morality is war. And what you get out of war is the destruction of whoever endangers your safety. And that does not lead to conservatism. It leads ultimately to world empire. And of course, this is Europe in, in the 20th century. It is somehow the greatness of Europe that it could boast half a dozen empires around the world from this little continent. But uh, those empires did also lead to catastrophe out of this question. Can you have world empire? And if not, what you end up with is nothing. But friendship here emerges as a kind of pattern for conservatism because this Englishman and the German, they can agree about rules of honor for fighting, for one thing. And they can respect in each other the daring to fight for what they believe in because each man holds his own home and family and way of life to be best, but can, for that reason, especially, must for that reason, respect that another man feels the same way. They can recognize each other's nobility and therefore must respect in each other what each of them feels, that his own is best and comes first. And that is a, a fundamental issue for any conservatism. Can you justify love of your own politically? And can you prove that it leads to nobility of aspiration rather than to, you know, what people nowadays damn as racism or xenophobia or any number of other phobias? Nowadays, it is taken for granted by most educated people that any phobia is a show of your inferiority. It is a show of a stunted mind or self, and that therefore trashing anything that is loved is the way to achieve some kind of new humanity. You could say the Colonel Blimp is so interesting now because of its exoticism. It takes the other opinion seriously, that love of your own is good for you. Love of your own is where we all begin and live our lives, but it must be justified, and it is not just salutary, but it is very interesting for an artist or for a thinker, because it leads to all these contradictions. Morality leads you to duels and death and war and all of these horrors. It is not a childish opinion that if we were moral, then we'd have peace. No, it says since we are moral and we must be moral, we must have also war. It's inevitable. The only question is what we do about it. No, I think that's all very good. And one thing you had me thinking about was that the way that we think about morality and justice today with respect to warfare, and in a way that when you watch this film, it's bracing because it does present an older understanding. And I think in some ways our understanding is impoverished because for us, when it comes to thinking about justice and warfare, it tends to cash out in one of two ways. Either you have this something like the left liberal view, which is almost always oppositional, right? It prefers pacifism to warfare, prefers decolonization to imperialism. It is essentially critical. And it cannot position itself, it cannot really envision what I would call a moral or idea, understanding of what it might mean to fight for something, unless perhaps it's somehow positioned as revolutionary or radical. But that's always destructive in some case, in some sense, it's not constructive. And the other thing that we see, which is perhaps more right-wing, I certainly tend to associate it with neoconservatism, but frankly, in the present age, it seems to be near universal in our media. And this is... The need to understand war is just, but again, in a negative sense, because it's because your enemy is so evil, you have to fight. And so this is why we see this constant and almost, I think, propagandistic demonization of Russia right now, not in the sense that I think we need to be defending the Russians, but in the sense that this demonization of Russia seems to take precedent over any consideration of what our own interests are. What are we fighting for? 
we can only be fighting against. And this, of course, has been, I think, a way of thinking about war that goes back to the Second World War. You know, it's the reductio ad Hitlerum. It's that the only thing that we can understand is the uh, the summum malum of Nazism. And you have to fight against that. Okay, fine. But what are we fighting for? And one of the really, I think, impressive things about the film is it doesn't demonize the Germans. It shows the blitz. It shows the effect of what they did to London very clearly. In fact, Blimp's own home is destroyed in the blitz in the climactic scene of the film. And this is that moment when he realizes that somehow he will endure and the sense of Englishness will endure beyond the destruction. But that's what's so lovely about it, because you never lose sight of the sense that this is an older understanding, which they do have something they're fighting for. They don't require that their enemy be somehow the purest evil for them to have to pick up arms. And at no point does the Blimp character seem to suggest that one shouldn't pick up arms. He's a warrior. And from the beginning, we see him fighting. He fights a duel as a young man. He fights in the First World War. And now as an older man, he's in something of a reserve position in the Second World War. And of course, he's a hunter as well. So it's not that he is a pacifist in any sense, but his understanding of war and justice in war is very much couched in a kind of deep patriotism, a sense that there is something that one has to be fighting for. And in this case, I think it is a certain idea of Englishness. And the film, I think, tacitly suggests that that sense needs to be passed on to the younger generation. They can't simply be fighting war for its own sake. And I think in turn, this does set certain limits on conduct. Because you have to have an understanding of yourself as the kind of person, as the kind of country that does things and doesn't do other things. And this is something I think we are increasingly deprived of today across the board. Yeah, maybe in a way it's useful to compare the Colonel Blimp situation with our situation. We have our own kind of propaganda, but today there's no art to speak of because nobody can really think of this as beautiful or care about it. If any of what we say about how noble our cause is against the, the evil of Putin were true or we believe it really, we would have recourse to art. We would look to what we believe is noble about us and summon whatever talents we can, maybe not as great as Paulus and Pressburger, but something, whatever we can boast of, because we would want to say this as we feel it must be said, beautify. And we don't. Instead, our propaganda is really our news. Nobody knows. Who are these heroes? You can't have a war without heroes. We don't really have any heroes. Who's doing what? What's happening in this world? We don't really know. Who's the general? You know, who's the Colonel Blimp there? We have no idea who any of these people are, because as you say, we have sort of become pacifists. What does it mean to be a pacifist then? Practically, it means being absolutely ignorant of war, of the virtues of war, of the conduct of war, of anything except, I guess, technology that we do talk of. Like what kind of tanks or planes might we be shipping off to the Ukraine? For what? Who will be using them? I mean, who cares? It's an odd situation to be in. It's hard to speak intelligently about war when you know nothing of it. It's hard to know anything about war if you do not respond at a moral level, as boys do to conflict, to questions of fair and unfair, of right and wrong, of truth and lies that get people angry in the first place. Being angry about these things is not all there is to being human, but it seems somehow to be the beginning of things, anger at injustice. And we somehow still feel anger at injustice but as you say, it has this odd character that we must believe that everybody's Hitler. It's obviously a childish response, but there's probably something worse wrong with it that has to do with the fact that we can't imagine that non-Hitler people, you know, people, people might disagree with us, that anybody would reject our power 
for anything but the worst reasons ever. And the problem, of course, is that Russia is a tyranny led by uh, an incredibly successful and apparently very clever tyrant. Putin doesn't seem to know much about war. So in that sense, I guess he's like us. He isn't doing much. But he seems to be an amazing tyrant in this other respect, keeping Russia free of American economic power. We've spent a year of trying to destroy him with the weapon of capitalism and apparently doesn't do anything. I don't think any of us expected that. I did not a year ago expect that the Russian economy would be fine. I thought it was immoral and, and stupid strategically to say that we're going to turn the ruble into rubble or that we're going to starve 100 million people. I think that's just awful. But I thought we actually could do terrible harm. Apparently, we've not achieved any of what we set out. I'm not sure I understand why, but I have noticed. But this is, again, not the war. It just has something to do with how we think about these people that none of them seem to deserve to live. And the oddity is that if you look away from the tyrant put into, you know, political prisoner Navalny or whoever, they are also nationalist Russians. We would not get any better along with any of these other Russians than we do with Putin. And partly it's because, I mean, we don't need exactly to get along with Russia. And obviously, we believe quite different things about the, the constitution of justice and politics. But is there any possible way to understand what they want out of life so that at least we don't have to wage war or you know, think of them as evil? That seems somehow to have been lost. And I think that's the most striking thing about what you said about the odd reactions from the progressive left to the neocon right. It doesn't seem as though it were possible to think of other human beings as also human. And the thing is that it's not just about Putin. It's not just about Russia. I have heard, you know, these very sophisticated or at least very successful people in the administration say very nasty things about Modi and India or, you know, former Obama chief of staff and Chicago mayor Rahm Emanuel, who is now ambassador in Japan, say very stupid and very insulting things about how Japan is apparently not pro-LGBT. Is anybody on the planet allowed to be who they are? I mean, the Indians, the Japanese, what are you going to do? You can't wage war on everybody. What is the wish of this pacifism? Is it the destruction of all these other people? Or just the pretense that they don't exist? We should have such a kind of arrangement of politics that we don't need to notice that they exist in the world? I can't tell if it's more imperial than any other empire or just more parochial than, you know, uh, the weirdest parochial tribes that are still left off somewhere in the Andaman Islands or something. But it's very, very strange. And I think there are many good things about our prosperous and peaceful way of life, but it somehow has done damage to us. It's very hard nowadays to point to Colonel Blimp, somebody who embodies, say, the American way in his nobility and might lead to war and adversarial dealings politically at any rate, but still speaks to the American nation openly, proudly, and makes a claim that this is what we believe in. This is our way of life. You all know it in your hearts. And it orders our life to understand at least ourselves and, you know, what to do with these problems we have with other nations. Somehow this does not seem available to us. That's very good. I think that does get at, in a very kind of roundabout way, to one of the fundamental problems that we have today, because our understanding of the liberal state is something like that which preserves our basic property and liberties. But somehow that's never fully satisfying to us. And also because it comes that question of, well, who's the us that's being preserved? And mostly this has to cash out one way or another as a particular way of life. The political community represents a particular way of life. And the state, with its enormous power and machinations, is meant to preserve that. But then what is it? We don't really have this answer. And Alan and Trustberger's films, and certainly this film, present a very clear and rich sense of what that English and British way of life is. 
it's striking to me that, and I'm not British, obviously, but it's striking to me that figures like Morrissey and John Cleese have come in for some criticism over the past few years because they obviously see it vanishing and they're not happy about that. And what's funny to me is that both Morrissey and John Cleese primarily made their names mocking and satirizing aspects of that way of life. The Smith songs, Monty Python, are very, uh, very much satirical of it, but they're still satirizing something. There's a substance that they're participating in that we might call Englishness. It's a robust sense of what it is to be something. You see it also in Orwell's raw essays like England, Your England, which is quite a lovely way of thinking about Englishness, albeit from a socialist standpoint. And this is simply a problem that we have today because we, we have to focus on demonizing our enemies in this way because well, what is the American way of life? What do we think that means in a non-negative sense? Right now, I live in Canada, a place that is fleeing. And I don't believe really a dog in this fight not having been raised here, but it seems to be fleeing from any understanding of Canadian history. And it can only interpret its legacy in negative terms, right? I mean, the term genocide now is routinely used to characterize the Canadian experience. I don't know where you go from that. I don't know what you do. Now, on the other end of things, you know, you begin, we're beginning to see this kind of embrace of national conservatism on the right. I think that is to make the wish the father of the thought, right? You still have to generate some idea, some substantive account of what you mean by the nation and what is being conserved. I call this the flux capacitor theory of nationalism. In Back to the Future, when he says, you know, they have this whole thing, and it's such a brilliant screenwriter trick, right? Oh, how did they come up with time travel? Well, the flux capacitor. What's the flux capacitor? Oh, it's the thing that makes time travel possible, you know? Well, what's the nation? Oh, it's the thing that makes our way of life possible. Okay, but what is your way of life? I mean, the screenwriters don't have to answer that problem because we don't ultimately care about what makes time travel possible. We care about the story. But when it comes to us, our story is our way of life. And I think the inability of the national conservative types to actually speak with any concreteness or any clarity about what the particular way of life they want to defend and why it's worth defending, I think is a real weakness in their account. This is just one of those places where somebody like Powell and Pressburger, they are in a more favorable position because they can look around them and they can create. And also they're able to generate rich accounts of what the English way of life might be and they can make it appealing. And in that sense, it is propagandistic, I suppose. But the propaganda is such a gentle propaganda. It's the propaganda of making you fall in love with Englishness and see it as something worth preserving and defending and fighting for. But this is something that we now in the year 2023 are increasingly, whether we're on the left or the right, have difficulty generating in any kind of clear and rich sense. That's our problem. Yeah, I think that's the most striking thing nowadays when you watch this movie, that it has a combination of gentleness and confidence. It wishes to bring together the best in aristocratic martial prowess, the willingness of a manly man to prove himself by killing people and getting himself killed in the process, if it should come to that. A scar is, is a thing to be proud of. We live in a society where everybody, but especially the ladies, seem to be getting tattoos, but nobody is doing the dangerous things that might lead to scars instead. We do not have, in that sense, experiences that might be impressive in a moral way, only the images of them in ink. Even in that sense, it's an odd way to be an embodied being. But of course, it adds to that aristocratic martial fervor, a very democratic quality. The young men, uh, Candy and his friend Hoppy, are very loud in the sauna, and the old military gentlemen are very angry at them. Or then later, these democratic young men of World War II kind of rough house with the old gentlemen. There's a strange equality between them. There's also a strange equality between the sexes. The three women played by the lovely, lovely Deborah Carr, as my 
far and away my favorite English actress of the 20th century, I have to say. Uh, she was usually lovely in movies with Cary Grant, but she was generally lovely. And all the three women she plays are uh, sp- uh, remarkable for their spiritedness and for their frank, open character. They, in a way, are even more English than the men because they cannot back it up with force. You could say that they are therefore more moral. What else do you have? And that combination of aristocracy and democracy and this vision of the 20th century, a moment when the English have to confront a very transformed world situation. There are, of course, all the international dangers on the one hand, and on the other hand, so many changes in the country suffered. Jets are mentioned at some point in the Boer War aftermath sequence around the turn of the century. The young lady who explains she's a governess in Berlin because it's all she can be except a wife. She was not educated in such a way as to pursue some career, and she has therefore only the command of her English language and good manners, and those are at a premium in Germany, but at a discount in England. Now, of course, that is because the people who might need better English and better manners can't afford to hire a governess. <laughs> so it's, it's a more complicated class picture than that, but it is very, very realistic. And of course, it turns out that she brings her English patriotism with her as well and writes the embassy and so forth because she wants the pride of England to be defended, no doubt in a reasonable but in a spirited way, even in Berlin or especially in Berlin, since that is the massive confrontation coming between the English and the Germans. No insult to the French nation and the great French empire as it uh, once was. But what was at the core of the 20th century wars in Europe was really more about the English than about the French, as the self-defense of the English proves. So the movie, in that sense, I think, also gives a very realistic portrayal of the problem besetting England in terms of class and in terms of the relations between men and women. The country is democratizing. Democratization might not go down well, and it needn't go down well, to say the least. But at at, at that moment, it is somehow possible for men and women not merely to fall in love, but to somehow take counsel together. The women are now in a position, as we see in the movie, to tell the men what to do, not to order them around, as is common in 2023. But still, they have themselves become not merely English, but so to speak, English actors. They are able to speak on behalf of what it means to be English. And presumably this was uh, very true in World War II, or much truer still in World War II. And therefore, it somehow speaks to the audience more directly to see the young man and the young woman and their strange freedom to understand themselves in that way. I think the movie is intended to help the young people of Britain become in a way more beautified by this period piece not in the sense of costume drama, not in the sense of the fact that uh, people used to be dressed more handsomely or with more care, but in the sense that they took their confidence from their nation and felt accordingly that they should act and speak in certain ways. It's an issue of character, of what your actions reveal about you and how you come to understand yourself in those cases where you feel you must act that to do otherwise would be to betray yourself or to betray maybe even something greater than you. And that gives the movie a power of conviction that I think goes way beyond propaganda. At any rate, when, whenever I see this movie, I do not laugh at these people. I think that there is something, of course, charming in them, but also very plausible. I think to some extent the movie is just trying to make sense of why would Englishmen go fight the Second World War? 
Now, of course, the 30s in England were a very pacifist and then shameful period, which a dishonest man who was sometimes low, poet Winston Hugh Auden, called very accurately a low dishonest decade. And yet this is the 40s. The English have come back to life, so to speak. Are the days of Churchill, the Lion of England. And I think to some extent the story is just trying to make sense of why would that be? Why did they behave this way? Why did they rise to the occasion, as we say? I think it's important to think about how much the Great War discredited democracy in the 20s and the 30s, discredited democracy in Europe. And that in a certain way, democracy in this movie is ennobled at a time when it was possible, plausible, given the war, but also very, very necessary, again, given the war, to do so. No, I think that's quite right. I think that's quite right. At the same time, there doesn't seem to be this sort of fetishization of the regime. And in that sense, I think perhaps it is a very conservative movie because it speaks to a kind of pre-political idea of what the nation is, of what the country is. There's very little talk, in fact, about the idea that the English, the British are a democracy in World War One, and the Germans are some kind of quasi, but not, you know, I guess, sort of militarized, more author- perhaps more authoritarian, that doesn't quite capture the strangeness of the regime under Kaiser Wilhelm II. But in any event, there's nothing that's made of that. What is made of that is the sense of the different characters of the country. Perhaps this is one of those things where ways in which we differ from the ancients. I mean, because, you know, Aristotle, of course, would say that, you know, when the regime changes, you know, the city changes. The character of the place all flows out of the regime itself. And that simply is not how we think, I think, today for a variety of reasons. And I think the film speaks to this idea as something like an underlying and almost eternal national character. And so there's very little focus on the question of government, in fact. And in that sense, any propaganda there is very gentle as well. There's no reference to who's prime minister at any point, despite the fact that Glimp is very Churchillian in many respects, in both his comic and his noble attributes. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. The references tend instead to be to pop culture. Arthur Conan Doyle and the Sherlock Holmes stories are mentioned. But, you know, when they talk about Doyle, uh, Glimp is at the army office and he uh, talks to one of his superiors there. And uh, the guy says, you know, I had the CEO just like Sherlock Holmes. Characters like Holmes are interpreted by these people as, again, not typically, but quintessentially English. They are somehow the superior Englishmen. They are the ones that guide us. We look at Holmes and he looks almost quaintly English, but to these people it meant admirably English. Glimpse superior at the army office comments on how uh, the sarcasm of Sherlock Holmes is devilishly attractive. There is something admirable in it because it shows the self-command of the Englishman. The sarcasm allows the Englishman to be on the one hand understated and on the other hand, nevertheless, to show his intelligence and his awareness of the situation. And I think that's also the way that the regime is treated altogether in the story. That is, you see some of the important men, older gentlemen, officers, higher up types, Blimp himself, the Colonel Blimp of the title becomes Major General Win Candy. These are important men. And they represent, therefore, the regime. In tune with the old aristocratic character, all of their dealings are private. This man, because he's as a Victoria Cross, as a young hero, has entrance to certain places where he talks to certain important men on a first-name basis, let's say, or, or it soon becomes that kind of thing. That's an aspect of aristocratic behavior. In our insistence on democracy, for example, we endlessly call people president decades after their presidency is over, and so with all of these other titles, because we have no idea how do you say to a man that you respect that he was important and public-spirited, 
and nevertheless are aware of the fact that that was a generation back. We don't really, you know, how do you deal with that? We don't know how, but uh, they deal with the regime in this odd, indirect way that conveys that in accordance with aristocracy, the regime can be described as a conspiracy of a small number of people, what I believe we could call in an, a vulgar way insiders. And on the other hand, in accordance with democracy, we see a strange kind of freedom, i.e. the young hero Candy takes it upon himself like you hear Corinthians say about the Athenians in the history of Thucydides. He takes it upon himself to become an ambassador of his country in Berlin. Not only is it unsought by his country when he offers his services, he's strongly advised not to go to Berlin. Only bad things can happen. And yet it is apparently English character for this man not just only to go to South Africa and fight for the English cause in the empire, but to go to Berlin and fight with words and then turns out a duel for the honor of the Englishman. That is a somewhat more democratic feature. The fact that he talks to a woman, in fact, follows her advice, takes her into his confidence, and her spiritedness rules him when he is inclined to be more discreet. Uh, as a soldier, he says, you know, he has to obey his superiors. All of these things point to the democracy. And the movie is very clever about mixing the two characters together and to suggest that the English at their best had an odd combination of this still very hierarchical, very structured system. That's what makes it reliable. That's what makes it predictable. Aristocracy is nothing not predictable. And on the other hand, this democratic gift for improvisation, and I think a very recognizably old American attitude that you have to go get it done, that you have to go it alone, that you have to have the can-do attitude. So I think there's at least that aspect of it that is immediately recognizable today. Well, that's good. The South African case is very interesting. And the fact that they allude to that, I've often wondered if, if that's them being very clever, not just because of the Churchill overlap, but the Boer War, that was a nasty war. Concentration camps, the basic cause of the war was extremely dubious. You know, everybody wants resources. And so I tend to think it is a subtle way of alluding to the darkness of the Victorian Edwardian period. For all that one wants to romanticize it, because it was a comparatively peaceable time compared with the 20th century, it reminds us that there is still some of that hardness and a ruthlessness to that, you know, to the empire that you can't quite romanticize away, even though it's possible, perhaps even necessary, to retain a certain romance of it. One is not to simply descend into nihilism or sheer realpolitik. And I mean, and also the romance of that period, it would not have been as romantic had they not been as successful. Of riding so high for so long contributed to that. And of course, they would not have been as successful had they not been as ruthless as they were willing to be time and time again and in place after place. Those were very tough. Perhaps this is something distinctively English. I'm not really sure. Uh, I think the American character is just a little more cynical. You know, I think of Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca. We tend to have a little more kind of natural cynicism maybe built into our national character. And it's just maybe one of those things in which these things are not entirely fungible, that every perhaps national character does have its distinctive qualities that are not entirely transferable. And so if you wanted to have some version of this for ourselves or other countries, it would have to be distinctive. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, that maybe what's useful and what's interesting in uh, another nation's character is of importance, not that we should all end up the same, but it is indeed very difficult to deal with. As I said at the beginning, uh, Casablanca was the biggest hit in Britain in 43, but this was number three and another English war movie was number two, so I guess they add up, and uh, they do offer a very different picture than Rick and his cafe. And you can see that somehow the English take more for granted of that aristocratic situation. Another one of the big propaganda movies of World War II was Laurence Olivier's Henry V. 
And I think that maybe encapsulates what you were saying, that on the one hand, King Henry is a very romantic, chivalrous figure and enormously attractive, therefore, not least because he's eloquent. But on the other hand, he's an incredibly calculated and ruthless prince. Laurence Olivier does not bring this out. I'm not sure to what extent uh, Laurence Olivier understood Shakespeare. But Shakespeare certainly was aware of the need for the kind of ruthlessness and cynicism that you were talking about. And perhaps for that reason might be, say, even more amenable to American character, which does tend to look at things in a more democratic light. It's typical to say something like, follow the money. But it is of the essence of Candy's character in Colonel Blimp that he looks away from that. Indeed, material or economic situations are never discussed except by the woman who complains about her plight. But on the other hand, we do see that to ascend into the class of respectable gentlemen, you have to learn self-denial. And maybe that's the most shocking thing about the movie, as you said, that the young Candy, out of honor for his newly found friend, the German officer, puts away his love of this woman and lets him marry her. He'll fight him for the honor of England, out of honor, he will not fight him for the girl. Now, I think that's as un-American as any sentiment has ever been. But it is somehow of the essence of aristocracy to have this self-denial, to have this capacity to deny yourself the thing that you most desire. As you say, we see Candy going around uh, Africa, big game hunting. I guess Theodore Roosevelt also did that, so it's not entirely unintelligible to Americans. But, you know, Theodore Roosevelt was also a very aristocratic figure. What I'm trying to get at is that the understanding of imperialism must have something to do with the consequences of the self-denial. What are these aristocrats supposed to do? There is much in society that they have to deny themselves. They cannot exactly rule, for example. Right? England has not been that kind of aristocracy in more centuries than it is easy to say. The aristocrats can find, or the gentleman class has to find something to do elsewhere. And imperialism seems to have been the English solution to this for the longest time. Presumably, if they had done it with even more gusto than they had done it, they they would have been in an even better position to fight the Germans in the world wars. The Germans managed to become so ferocious and mighty in war without the benefits of this kind of imperialism and seem to have been so much the worse for it. Imperialism, I think, is part of the grandeur, glory, and the morality of England. The Germans, since they fought their wars at home and their wars of unification and so forth, seem to have become much the worse for it. And I think that you say our all American democratic sympathy should be with the Germans. They were fighting for national liberation. How Wilsonian and self-determining is that? But it did something horrible to them. One sees this in the story that the English are proud of being victors in South Africa, but the Germans who were, of course, on the Boer side and involved in some shady things, as we learn from this double agent spy figure, they feel the need to say very ugly things and are incredibly prickly. And you could say that, since you mentioned Churchill, Churchill's remark about the oddity of the German Empire in regards to the Great War is that these people who were terrifying Europe with their newfound power endlessly said how endangered they feel they are, that they are threatened at every turn. Churchill suggests that the Germans under Kaiser Wilhelm offended everybody everywhere and yet always felt the victim for it. The English don't seem to have that kind of problem because their self-denial at home means that the gentlemen affirm themselves in a greater arena And at the same time, the teaching of self-denial for gentlemanship suggests to them that 
you should never become that indignant. It is preferable to them to have Sherlock Holmes and his sarcasm and witticisms than to have indignation. The Germans, for that reason, seem a lot more moralistic than the English, are easily given to indignation, and a lot less moral because they can't control themselves. No, I think all that's quite right. I think it is hard for us to act to get back to a sort of way of thinking about these things more subtly because we want to begin from what is most obvious and then sort of descend from there. We're sort of removed from the ordinary experience of, well, first, certainly most of us have not, do not have experience of war. It's really most, frankly, a tremendous number of filmmakers and artists did. We're only now seeing relatively recently the passing of the generation of, of those who still would have had some of that experience. The boomers were the first, probably the first generation where you began to see that separation in a notable way between those who, who, who experienced war and those who didn't. I think this just bears on how we understand the status of our country in relation to other countries. Well, David, I think we've reached the end of our conversation. I hope we have shown our audience that it's not just this so beautiful and wonderfully insightful movie, but that it is especially interesting now, given the contrast in experience and uh, the contrasting views of uh, foreign affairs, not just of questions of national character. These things somehow come up, one assumes they will come up soon in a way in our lifetime for all the powers. I think it's safe to say that in our lifetime, there will not be any globalization. There is instead this strange assertion of different ways of life. It seems like the word nationalism doesn't convey it. I find it hard to think of Japan as a nation, but much harder of China or India. And yet they seem to be not just powers in their own right, but to have some views that will not budge in face of the growth of commerce and technology. So I think resources for even thinking about ways of life or questions of justice and national character are urgently in demand in a way they have not been, at least since the end of the Cold War, but perhaps even before that. We have long had some strange desire, which I think is most obvious or most at home in America, to think of everyone as the same and longing for democracy and likely to get it good and hard. But this doesn't seem to be the case nowadays. So I think that's maybe our defense for comparing 1943 with 2023 and Britain with America and that situation of war with the kinds of wars, if that's what they are, that we have nowadays with a view to what we might expect in the future. So thanks very much for joining me. I was surprised very pleasantly that this is a movie so dear to your heart and uh, therefore such a good opportunity for conversation. And so let's do this again soon with some other movie. Of course. That was my pleasure. I just hope that we didn't dig too much deeply beneath the surface of things because really the surface <laughs> of the film is quite lovely. You just have to see it for yourself. You'll laugh, you'll cry, etc. You can come to the political stuff later. Yes, exactly. It's uh, in a way very good that nowadays you can uh, find the movies everywhere. And so it makes sense to have podcasts about them. People will get to see them for themselves. But on the other hand, we always seem to start the other way around. We do the talk first when people have to see the movie later. But, you know, it's not perfect. This is the best we've got. <laughs> so all the best until next time.